Hello, lonely palateers. This is Mark Chrysler, host of The Constant, A History of Getting Things Wrong, and the latest humbly honored honoree to sit in Tamar's hosting chair. At The Constant, I tell stories about mistakes, misapprehensions, and failures through time. Usually those stories are historical, oftentimes they're science-based, but every once in a while I get to talk a bit about art, an area as prone to fascinating screw-ups and errors as any other human endeavor, really. This story was from just before I joined Hub and Spoke, and I'm recording this intro just after finally meeting face-to-face with my wonderful collective cohorts. I can't imagine there's any more table for me to set, so let me try to get out of my own way here, but not before thanking Tamar for her generosity in bringing this story here, and thanking you for sticking around to hear it. I hope you enjoy. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. Let's start with an easy question. Have you ever seen Da Vinci's Mona Lisa? It's not actually the most straightforward question, come to think of it, because there is a sense in which nearly everyone has seen the Mona Lisa. But you know what I mean, right? Like, have you seen it? Waited in the line that inevitably forms at the Louvre that eventually puts you in the room with the surprisingly small and unimposing painting. Have you really seen it? All right, simple enough. Now, a slightly harder one. Have you seen the Venus de Milo? If you saw the Mona Lisa at the Louvre, odds are you also saw the Venus. If anyone has, that is. Because this famous statue, known for its armless beauty, was not, of course, meant to be seen armless. It wasn't carved that way. When it was rediscovered in the 1820s, it was broken into several pieces. The upper body was separated from the legs and the left arm shattered with a hand holding an apple nearby. Probably, the Venus de Milo was sculpted around 100 BC, likely by Alexandros of Antioch, or else possibly Praxiteles. Whichever, no one knows for sure what the Venus was actually meant to look like, yet thousands look at it every day. Or they look at something. Have you seen the Venus de Milo? Has anyone? Okay, final question. For all the marble, have you seen Michelangelo's Pietà? Why don't we make this simple and just pretend you have? Let's say you went to the Vatican, made your way to St. Peter's Basilica, crossed through the holy door, and set your eyes upon it. Mary with the body of her son, Jesus Christ, recently crucified, strewn over her arms. Let's say you saw the Pietà on Pentecost Sunday, May 21st, 1972. You stood among the crowd in awed silence of the sublime masterpiece. And then, let's say, all of a sudden, you heard a voice scream, I am Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Let's say that next you saw a man who, to his credit, did in fact look a good deal like the corpse in the virgin's lap, beard, long hair, long nose, leap the velvet ropes, and run up to the Pietà with a hammer. Then, let's say, you watched him destroy it. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, The Gentle Hammer. 
When Michelangelo was commissioned to create his Pietà in August of 1498, he was only 24 years old, a relative unknown who had only been in Rome for two years. He'd already made a number of great works, an oversized Hercules, a small Cupid, a tiny John the Baptist. But in Rome, he'd only yet completed a giant statue of Bacchus, god of wine. Cardinal Raphael Riario, who'd commissioned the piece, was displeased by the result and rejected it. But Michelangelo's obscurity was about to fall away, and the idea that someone could be nonplussed by his work and reject it would soon be laughable. Because his Pietà was to prove to be a masterwork of unparalleled thought, craft, and artistry. Yeah, I know, David. David's great. Of course David's great. Who's saying David isn't great? And it was really David that cemented Michelangelo's place as the greatest sculptor of his time, of all time, maybe, and as the only Renaissance rival to Leonardo da Vinci. But the Pietà? The Pietà is astonishing. There's nowhere in scripture or catechism that says Mary held her son's body. But in art, it's everywhere. The first sculptures of this theme date back to around 1300 Germany, where it's called Vesperbild, but soon spread throughout Europe. By 1400, the motif was all the rage in Central Europe and Italy, where it became known as Pietà, or the Pity. Usually, Pietà were made of wood and featured Mary, the mother, mature and grieving, her face in mourning anguish, held low or else crying skyward, with the desiccated, impassioned body of the Christ, disfigured and impaired by the wounds of his death, the nails, the spear, the cross. Michelangelo's was different. Both Mary and Jesus appear almost serene, beatific. Christ's body is not mangled or marred, and the Virgin's face is placid, contemplative, and young, so very young. She looks no older than her son, maybe even less. Michelangelo explained to his biographer, Ascanio Condivi, that her purity and chastity had, in his estimation, prevented her from aging. What really set Michelangelo's out from the pitying crowd, though, was its sheer mastery. The form and balance, the perfect pyramid of the work, the anatomy of Christ, the flowing garments of Mary, her marble robes are so delicate and flowing that you can't help thinking a stiff wind would blow them. His veins are so real that they must contain blood. To think that one man, one 24-year-old man, could, in less than two years, take a six-and-a-half-foot block of stone and from it find this? It's beyond comprehension. It is, in the truest sense of the word, awesome. But that, of course, is the reputed genius of Michelangelo and his most famous expression, that to him, the statue was already alive within the marble. His job was just to remove everything else. Or, as he told Condivi, carving is easy. You just go down to the skin and stop. But on May 21st, 1972, Laszlo Toth went further. There's a lot that we simply don't know about Laszlo Toth. He was born in July of 1938 
making him 33 on that Pentecost Sunday, the same age as Jesus at the time of his crucifixion. He came from Hungary and studied geology. After he got his degree, he moved to Australia, but he didn't speak English, so he had trouble securing a job. He came to Italy in the summer of 1971 and probably took up in a hostel there. Some newspapers reported that he only came to Rome to prove he was Jesus. Others say he was out to convince the Pope to release the third secret of Fatima, a prophecy supposedly delivered to Portuguese schoolchildren in 1916 and kept under wraps by the Vatican. Danny Bloom, Toss' roommate at the hostel, contradicts those theories, saying that while he carried a Bible, Laszlo told Danny he was never very religious. Bloom described Toth as totally sane, a drinking, smoking, Hungarian poet who liked to party, get high, and pontificate about the things drunk and stoned people do. Bloom left the hostel, returning to New York and only ever seeing him again the next day on the front page of the New York Times, in a photograph that is practically a Renaissance composition itself. A Toth screaming on the ground, covered in bystanders and police officers who have tackled him, all of them beside Michelangelo's Pietà, or the parts of it that survived, at least. The first time it was defaced, the Pietà was less than a year old, and the culprit was Michelangelo himself. Originally, the statue was placed at the chapel of Santa Petronilla, and there, Michelangelo overheard visitors discussing it and saying that it had been carved by Cristoforo Solari. Incensed, Michelangelo retrieved his chisel and into Mary's sash inscripted, Michelangelo Florentine made this. It was the only piece he ever signed, and he later said he regretted his youthful pride. In 1736, Mary's left hand was broken when the statue was being moved. It was restored, but scholars have debated ever since whether the restorer, Giuseppe Lirioni, altered her gesture. Before he was restrained, Laszlo Toth managed to get 16 strikes in with his geologist's hammer. He took off the Mother Mary's eyelid, her nose at the bridge, and her left arm at the elbow. When it hit the ground, the arm shattered, the fingers flew off and spread across the floor of St. Peter's. When the dust settled, there were two questions. What to do with Laszlo Toth, and what to do with the Pietà. A proper punishment for Toth, one Roman paper suggested, would be to remove his eyelid, his nose at the bridge, and his left arm at the elbow. But not everyone was angry with Toth. Some, in fact, were positively elated. In 1938, the year of Toth's birth, the French playwright Antonin Artaud published The Theater and Its Double, a book of incendiary essays on the nature of art, which included no more masterpieces, a call to forget and destroy the outdated, elitist canon of Western art. For many of his disciples, Laszlo Toth was Artaud's ideology made flesh. One newsletter gave him a formal title, Laszlo Toth of the Gentle Hammer. A small group of artists, including Richard Fredette and Dennis Bathory Kitts, formed the Laszlo Toth School of Art. From what I can tell, the institution lived only in t-shirt form. Fredette and Bathory Klitz were influenced by Marcel Duchamp and called their movement Doo-Doo Dadaism. 
the American composer Ken Friedman, a member of another avant-garde collective in the 70s called Fluxus, wrote an oratorio for Toth. But did any of this high-minded art vandalism talk have anything to do with the man himself? Had he done the deed after a reading of Artaud or a love for Duchamp? No. The simplest explanation, the one attested to in the press as given by Toth in custody, was that he had done it because he was Jesus, reborn, and because he was insulted by the woman in the sculpture, who looked nothing like his mother. He was taken away from St. Peter's to jail in police protection, as the crowd threatened to lynch him. Accused of nine years' worth of vandalism charges, he waged a bizarre and incoherent defense. He redoubled his claims that he was Jesus, but at one point also said that he was Michelangelo, sent back to earth by God to destroy his sculpture because of his pride in attempting to give the eternal Lord a mother. When the court, quite reasonably, found him not guilty by reason of insanity, Toth screamed that they were sinning by demeaning Christ as crazy and warned the judges that he would condemn them to hell personally on Judgment Day. He was escorted away to an Italian asylum, where he spent the next two years. The more difficult question was what to do with the Pietà. The same crowd that had overborne Toth and saved the statue had also made off with pieces of it in their pockets. The Pope asked for the pieces to be returned, and some guilty pilferers made good, but plenty pieces were lost forever or else entirely destroyed. Leaving aside the fringe element that was happy to see the piece damaged, there were serious questions within the art world about whether and how to rebuild the piece. Some said the sculpture should be left as the hammer had left it. Others argued that it should be restored, but in a way that forever preserved and displayed the damage. Most, though, wanted the harm healed and forgotten. Crucially, that group included the Vatican itself and its director of museums, Diocleso Jacampus. And so, Jacampus gathered up ten historians, artisans, and art restorers and created a sort of marble mash tent right there in the middle of St. Peter's, where they set to work undoing the destruction of Laszlo Toth. Given the mission of this show, you might understandably be anticipating a disaster, that Mary's new arm ended up deformed or her eyelid droopy, or that maybe a clumsy restorationist bungled his tripping way onto the sculpture, tipping it over, breaking the whole thing into a million billion pieces. Good guesses, all. But nope. The thing that we got wrong, the fatal flaw of this story, it's already done. All that's left is for us to go back and find it. At the age of 49, Pierre Lagrange, a billionaire Belgian hedge fund manager, left his wife and three kids. The divorce proceedings were messy, to say the least. In an effort to divide the estate, Pierre liquidated a bunch of his assets. He stepped down from a bona fide palace, Oxfordshire's Woodbury House, to just a regular, gigantic mansion. He sold a 90 million pound house in London, and he started getting some of his art collection appraised for auction including a 15 by 28 and a half inch original Jackson Pollock painting. Well, purportedly. Pollock was a major, if not the major figure of the abstract expressionist movement, who's best known for the innovation of drip painting, 
i.e. that thing that every third jackass jokes about their kid being able to do in preschool when they go to the museum. He was also an infamous jerk, an abusive drunk, who drove himself as well as his mistress and a friend into a tree and died in 1956. Which is weird, because LaGrange's investigation into his Pollock showed that the yellow paint wasn't manufactured until 1970. So on November 29th, 2011, LaGrange wrote an email to the Nodler Gallery in Manhattan, who had sold him the forgery in 2007 for $17 million, demanding his money back. Over the next year, it would be uncovered that one of the most prestigious galleries in the world had bought and sold 20 high-profile, multi-million dollar forgeries over the course of nearly 20 years. I don't want to exaggerate, but this sort of thing happens all the time. All the time. In April of 2018, a small museum in the south of France dedicated to painter Etienne Terrace discovered that they had a fake on their hands when an art historian brushed his finger against a signature and found that it smeared. Then he looked a little further and discovered that one of the Terrace landscapes featured a building erected in the late 40s. But Terrace had died in 1922. In all, the museum eventually confirmed that more than 80 of their paintings, 60 or so percent of their collection, was forged. Go to any museum, any museum in the world, the Louvre, the Tate, the Met, the Art Institute, the Smithsonian, name it. Spend a day in any of them, and the odds are that you, along with thousands of other visitors and the museum itself, got duped at least once. Oh, sorry. No, I see what you're thinking. No, no, no. Michelangelo's P.A. Tau wasn't a forgery. No. Well, not until 1972, at least. Jacampo's restoration of the Pietà was as fine, meticulous, and detailed as any that had ever been undertaken. His team was able to get new marble from the same pit Michelangelo had used and blend it into a plastic resin that was poured into a mold of the statue, which had been taken in the 40s when Mary and Jesus had visited New York for the World's Fair. Then they were able to cross-check the replacement pieces against hundreds of photographs taken over the years by both tourists and the Vatican itself. In the end, they even gave Mary a bath, whitening her patina with soap and water. The marble polymer mix had several special qualities, too. For one, it's fluorescent. Put it under blacklight, and the restored pieces glow. And it's soluble, able to be washed away if ever it's decided that the restoration is a mistake. When they unveiled the newly restored Pietà 11 months after its injuries, it was, in every conceivable respect, identical to the statue that had sat in St. Paul's up until Laszlo Toth made his entrance on the scene. Now held behind a bulletproof glass case, Jacampo's work was a triumph. Ah, but there's the rub. Jacampo's work, not Michelangelo's. In 1978, Mark Sagoff wrote an essay for the Journal of Philosophy entitled On Restoring and Reproducing Art. Sagoff first urges us to think of all those forgeries, all those copies and prints out in the world, and asks, what do we do with them? The answer is simple. 
the Getty Museum purchased a large koros, the Greek word for a statue of a young man, in 1985 for $9 million. Very soon after that, doubts about it began to spring up. The statue had supposedly been dug up in a dig in the early 20th century, but there was no record of it there, and some of the statue's features made it difficult to trace to any known workshop or artist. Still, forensics showed that it had been created via an ancient process which was impossible to fake. So, for years, the plaque next to the Getty Karos read Greek, about 530 BC, or modern forgery. Then, it was finally discovered that the ancient, unfakeable process was indeed quite fakeable. The Koros was a phony after all. And what did the Getty do? They removed it. The Terrace Museum in France removed 60% of its collection. The Nodler, which opened in 1846 and survived civil and world wars, depressions and booms, went a step further than either of those. They closed up shop completely. When we discover that works of art are inauthentic, we get rid of them. We put them in the basement, we sell them off cheap, we destroy them. Why? Well, suppose the person you love most in the world, your father, your mother, your wife, your husband, your son, your daughter, was taken from you. A thing which inevitably happens to anyone who dares to love, after all. Cancer, heart disease, even murder. Take your pick. Now, say that someone could give you an exact copy of your lost loved one. That may be tempting, sure. But would it undo the death? Would it erase the trauma? Could anyone, no matter how identical, truly be the person you love if they're someone else? No. Copies can be great. Copies can be better than the original, less faded, more crisp. But they're still just that. Copies. I'm staring at a copy of a Vermeer right now. Well, actually, it's a copy of a von Migren who was a Vermeer forger, but let's not get stuck in the weeds here. I love this copy. It's beautiful. And it has meaning to me. But it is not Vermeer's. Or even von Migren's. The question here, at its heart, is one of the broadest and yet most specific, most obvious and yet most difficult in all of philosophy. What is the thing? What is the thing when it comes to art? What is the Mona Lisa? What is the Venus to Milo? And what, finally, is the Pietà? Most of the art we deal with from day to day in modernity doesn't have an object. Take music. What is a piece of music? Up until the 19th century, it was a bit of notation, notes on clefs performed to some degree or another of proficiency by a performer. Then, with the invention of the gramophone, a new kind of musical art object was born, the recording. Today, I don't have a single device in my apartment with an optical drive. What is music to me? Most of the time, it's not even a copy of a copy of a performance. It's some sort of cloudly streaming copy of a copy of a copy of a performance. Let's, for a minute, indulge me and consider this, this thing that you're listening to right now, a piece of art. What and where is it? Is it in the script that I'm typing right now? Or the performance that I'm recording right now? Or the production that I'm working on there? Does it live in your phone? 
Does it live in the servers or the apps? It's 30 Zen Cohen's in one fell swoop, folks. But for a sculpture or a painting, Sagoff says it is much simpler. There is no notation against which we can judge a painting like a piece of music. There is no first edition against which we can proofread a freeze. So how can we determine whether Michelangelo's Pietà is authentic? By ensuring that it is the Pietà made by Michelangelo. From the moment Toth's hammer fell, there was less and less Pietà. But from the moment Jacopo's restoration began, there was less and less Michelangelo. Rather than adding back 100% of the masterpiece, he was tacking on 20% of a copy. At what ratio would we no longer allow it to be called Michelangelo's? At what point does it just become a copy, a knickknack, a souvenir to be sold at the gift shop? I was around halfway through writing this when I saw the reports that Notre Dame was burning. I quickly found a live feed of the fire, opened it in one window while I scrolled through Twitter, Reuters, CNN, and the BBC in separate tabs in the other, searching for details for the latest statements for, in a word, hope. It made my heart heavy to see this thing, the center of Paris for the better part of a millennium, falling apart before my eyes. Almost immediately, the discussion became about rebuilding. On social media, because it is social media, that discussion largely centered around whether it was ethical or moral to spend money on fixing up a building when the world knows so many more pressing questions. And then there was another thread that rolled its eyes at the emotional response many, including me, no question about it, were feeling. The place will be returned in a year or 10, or 20, and no one will even remember that it burned. So what was the big whoop? But, of course, it was a big whoop. Because the Notre Dame that stood over the Reformation and the Revolution, over Louis and Robespierre and Napoleon and Hitler, over Van Gogh and Cezanne and Satie and Debussy, that Notre Dame? That Notre Dame is gone. And, look... Buildings are different, even a building as spectacular as Notre Dame, because it isn't the work of one person or one time. It took 200 years to build the cathedral in the first place, and never in the centuries that followed did a month go by when something wasn't being fixed or replaced or improved. Still, looking at the debates and arguments and discussions surrounding Notre Dame's restoration, I was struck that nobody bothered to even consider whether such a thing as restoration is actually possible let alone advisable. We all understand at some level that the import of the Pieta, or Notre Dame, or a statue of a Greek boy, is an appreciation of their history. And yet, when history happens before our eyes, our first instinct is to bury it. In 1975, Laszlo Toth was released from his court-mandated psychiatric hospital. He was immediately deported back to Australia to the care of his family, those who loved him most of anyone in the world. But he was never the same person they'd known before he went to Rome. How could he be? In researching this story, I found out that he died in 2015 in New South Wales, 
Somebody had tracked down his grave in response to a request on the BBC, which asked, has anyone seen Laszlo Toth? And that's the real question. Since May 21st, 1972. Not have you seen Laszlo Toth. Not have you seen Michelangelo's Pietà. But has anyone? Music for today's episode by Lee Rose Ver, Blue Dot Sessions, Kevin McLeod, and Anime is Trash. It's only been two weeks, but I'm already humbled beyond humble and gracious beyond gratuity to all the new Patreon supporters. Particular thanks go out to my parachuting cats, Derek Fisher, Alyssa Shrum, Emily Altman, and Andrew Berg. Last week, I performed the first live episode of The Constant at the Plagiarist Salon here in Chicago. The audio of that piece is up right now on the Patreon secret feed. If you want to hear that, as well as the story of the Great London Beer Flood and all the other secret episodes to come, go to patreon.com slash theconstant and sign up to support the show. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, home to the Art Institute of Chicago, which for 10 years prominently displayed The Fawn by Paul Gauguin until it was discovered in 2007 to have been sculpted by forger Sean Greenhall, this has been The Constant.